Hello and welcome back to HIF Player, the podcast from Harrogate International Festivals. You are joining with audiences from across the globe to enjoy HIF Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. We're thrilled to bring you Bowen Salon North, Harrogate's very own TED Style Talks, sponsored by Bowen Solicitors. In a time of polarised debate, Bowen Salon North gives you the time and space to learn from the experts and make up your own mind. Sit back, relax and enjoy an insightful and entertaining talk from our expert guest speaker, Nan Sloan, exploring revolutionary women in history, recorded live as part of Berwyn Salon North, Uncontrollable or Revolutionary. Can I say, first of all, thank you very much indeed for the invitation to be here this evening. It is brilliant to be in front of a real live audience again and brilliant to be able to come and talk about the women that I spent most of lockdown alone researching and writing and thinking about. Um, uh, The title of the book, Uncontrollable Women, uh, comes from a quotation in a newspaper in 1819 about a woman on the night of Peterloo who was absolutely furious. And we can assume she was furious about the massacre that had happened during the day. We don't know because we don't hear anything in the woman's own voice. All we know is that she was described as an uncontrollable woman whose tongue no human effort could check. And apart from that being a brilliant title for a book, it also, uh, when I came across it, made me start to think about why would you want to check the tongue of a woman? People do not, and certainly did not at that time, talk about checking the tongues of men. Um, In fact, the world was full of men talking and thinking and writing and discussing Um, and engaging with the world. So why would you want to control and check the tongue of a woman? And that led me on to thinking about women's voices, women's voices throughout history. The book covers the revolutionary age, so 1789, the outbreak of the French Revolution, to 1832 and what is known as the Great Reform Act, despite the fact that it was neither particularly great nor particularly reforming. Um, And uh, I began to look at and to think about uh, how women's voices have been thought about and treated over the uh, centuries. And this prejudice against women expressing an opinion as we know, goes back millennia. People have sometimes heard the quote about um, the uh, um, Athenian general Pericles saying that a woman's great glory is not to be spoken of. But there was also a common Athenian saying that when a man teaches a woman how to write, he is giving poison to an asp. Um, And... Uh, you can go on through, you know, St. Paul, women should stay silent in churches for it is a disgrace for women to speak in a church. If they want to know anything, they should ask their husbands quietly at home. Assuming, of course, that the husbands know the answer to the question in the first place, which isn't necessarily particularly safe. 
Um, and so it goes on. There are lots and lots of quotes, but I thought you might particularly appreciate one from a man called uh, Thomas Wilson in uh, 1553, uh, who had quite a lot to say about women and their voices, uh, in particular this. Uh, what becometh a woman best? And first of all, silence. <laughs> what second? Silence. What third? Silence. What fourth? Silence. Yea, if a man should ask me till doomsday, I would still say silence. Silence without which no woman hath any good gift. But having the same, no doubt she must have many other notable virtues, the which of necessity do always follow such a gift. Now, 20 years later, Thomas Wilson became Elizabeth I's private secretary. So I'm imagining that he heard rather more of an authoritative woman's voice than he had anticipated. This kind of thing was completely uncontentious when he wrote it and published it, and would have been agreed with by most people at the time. Uh, in uh, Coriolanus, Shakespeare has his hero or anti-hero, depending on how you construe that play, um, uh, describe his wife as my gracious silence. And uh, King Lear talks about um, uh, Cordelia's voice as, ever soft, gentle, and low, an excellent thing in a woman. By the time we get to the 18th century, people were obsessed with how young women should behave. Um, I, I don't know if you, this may or may not have transferred into our current times, but there was a, a plethora of books about how women should behave, how girls should be educated, how young women should behave in company. And they were uh, often um, enjoined to be quiet, retiring, not to intervene in conversation, not to express opinions, not to say what they thought, and preferably not to think, but if they must, keep it to themselves. There was a lot of discussion about what type of silence should be observed, how you should be silent. Um, there is a, a woman who um, published uh, in um, 1773 a book on <coughs> the education of young ladies, which uh, was very popular well into the 19th century, um, which basically said, um, uh, when you're silent, she was actually quite good on broadening girls' education, but she didn't want them to use it for anything particular, and certainly not to display it in company. And so she said to them, when you are silent, you must show a pleasing attention to the other people in the room who are speaking, because nothing is more pleasurable to people than a young woman silently paying attention. Um, uh, um, Pretty sure the women in Bridgerton never read that book. Um, even Mary Wollstonecraft, the mother of feminism, in her first book, uh, Thoughts on the Education of Daughters, uh, a volume you probably haven't come across, but which does have some 
um, really interesting things to say about the education of girls and which um, uh, it, it has in it the um, signs of what Mary Wollstonecraft would become, um, uh, says, I must own, I am quite charmed when I see a sweet young creature shrinking, as it were, from observation, listening rather than talking. Of course, it is possible that a girl may have this manner without having a very good understanding. If it should be so, this diffidence from her prevents her from being troublesome. So, if you're bright, stay in the corner, don't say anything. If you're not very bright, definitely stay in the corner and don't say anything. And this from Mary Wollstonecraft is a bit counterintuitive. Um, and it demonstrates how deeply ingrained in society this idea of women's silence was. This idea that women should not have voice and this idea that women should not use any voice um, that they had. Um, of course, as time went on, women did begin to question this. And during the course of the 18th century, women began to develop um, voices of their own, but always within um, certain boundaries. So women could talk about religion, they could talk about uh, uh, housewifery, they could write novels, there were hundreds of women novelists by the end of the 18th century. We sort of tend to think there's just Jane Austen and then a big gap to Charlotte Bronte, but it's, that's not quite the case. There were literally hundreds. Everybody had a novel in them and everybody wrote their novel. Books by women sold really well and publishers uh, actively chased after them. But what women could not do was talk about politics or intrude in any way into what was considered to be the male sphere of life. So as long as you were writing novels where, where good triumphed, evil didn't, where the good women were moral and uh, came through every trial with their virtue intact and the bad women all died at the end, you were fine. But if you wanted to write anything else, you were going to run into um, immediate difficulties. And um, so women who did do that uh, tended uh, either to get marginalized or become very famous in a not very good way very quickly uh, or to be forgotten about very quickly. And I'm uh, going to come on in a few minutes to talk about some of those uh, women. Uh, it, it, uh, those particular women. Um, uh, there was a, um, uh, a prejudice against women appearing in public. So women could go to church, women could go to balls, women could go to social events. Working class women obviously could go to work because that's what they were there for. Um, though the same prejudices applied to women of all classes. There was a huge amount of discussion and debate about whether or not it was moral for women to be working in factories and mills and down mines. The prejudice against women down mines was not because the work was heavy, difficult, horrible, 
dangerous and very poorly paid, but because it was so hot that they tended to strip to the waist, and this was a temptation to the men, which men should be spared when down a mine, apparently. Um, uh, in particular, by the time we um, get into the early 19th century, women were beginning to engage with the parliamentary reform movement, particularly in the north of England, where that movement was um, uh, very strong. And uh, the, uh, we see during that period, in the run-up to Peterloo in 1819, women beginning to appear on public platforms, making speeches of their own, which they had written by themselves. And there was often a lot of discussion about whether or not the women could have written the speech by themselves or whether it must have been written by uh, one of the men for them. And you can usually tell when they were written for, by one of the men because the men tended to make very long, heavy speeches and the women tended to make quite short, pithy speeches. So the, uh, there was a, a question of style. Um, the press was outraged uh, by the appearance not just of women on public platforms, but working class women on public platforms. And uh, one editor in uh, particular was, um, uh, spoke for a great many people when he said um, uh, that these wretched creatures in their eagerness to display their persons and let loose their tongues. Forget how much more women are protected than restrained by the barrier which separates them from the toil, obloquy, and hazard of public business. But what can be said about the feelings and morals of the fathers, the husbands, and the brothers who have permitted or encouraged the violation of that sacred female privacy of which they are the appointed guardians. This was written about women who worked in mills, in factories, who worked as servants, who did difficult and often dangerous jobs, who had no option but to do it, and who starved when there was no work. But still, the rules about how women should use their voices, where and when they should use their voices, were believed to apply to them. Um, some of these women's voices, and, and some of those uh, northern working class women are, are in the book and are really interesting women in their own right, especially when we can actually give them names. Um, uh, some of those women were forgotten and marginalised at the time because of this idea that to speak a woman's name was somehow to dishonour her. Um, I, I had to think of some of this stuff when I saw the fracas at the, the, the Oscars and the keep, keep my wife's name out of your mouth. I thought, hello, we're back to that, are we? Um, uh, but also, we tend to forget women because we have our own prism through which we look at the history of women. I'm not very keen 
on the phrase women's history because I think that suggests that the history of women is something that only women should be interested in, whereas I think the history of half the human race, when it is slightly different from the other half of the human race, is actually quite interesting. If we put the two together, we'd have a history of the whole human race, and then we'd, um, we'd perhaps view ourselves in a slightly different um, light. But what we tend to see uh, the history of political women in particular as either suffrage, the suffrage, female suffrage campaign, or modern feminism of in all its various kinds. And if we can't force women into one or other, or preferably both, of those moulds, then somehow we don't listen to them properly. And as an example of that, I uh, go back to Mary Wollstonecraft, uh, one of the quotes that you often come across for, uh, of hers is, virtue cannot flourish among equals. And it is assumed that this is about the relationship between women and men, and it fits that quite nicely. But, and, and it's attributed to the Vindication of the Rights of Women, which is the, the book that, the, the, the publication of hers that everybody uh, tends to have heard of, if they've heard of anything. Uh, and don't just have the usual vague idea of Mary Wollstonecraft, first feminist, and uh, that's pretty much it. Um, in fact, it's from an earlier, the work before that, called Vindication of the Rights of Man, um, which was written in response to a small c conservative reaction to the French Revolution and was a defense of uh, the French Revolution and in in particular, some of the incidents in that which had happened over the previous couple of months. And um, it relates not to the relationship between women and men at all, but to land reform and the relationships between landowners and their tenants. And this was an issue in which all radicals at the time were intensely interested and which they all wrote about extensively because the whole, uh, um, the events of the French Revolution threw this into stark relief as a, a question for this country as well as for France. Who owns the land? Who owns the wealth? How do they use it? How do the people who don't have it access it? And it is written not about what we think of Mary Wollstonecraft as at all, but about land reform and class. But we have removed all of that from Mary Wollstonecraft. We see her only as a uh, feminist, the mother of feminism. And if the things that she said or did don't fit into that, then we don't see them, or we don't see them accurately. And so part of what I wanted to do with this um, book was to refocus our attention on some of those women and to, um, uh, to find some of the others that uh, we perhaps ought to know more about. And I'm just quickly going to refer to two of them. The first is a woman called Helen Mariah Williams of whom you have probably never heard, but who uh, everybody ought to know about. Helen Mariah Williams was a writer, a poet, a novelist, 
because um, they all were, um, in uh, London in the uh, 1780s. She had a literary salon. She was very well known. Um, she was a friend of Samuel Johnson. She moved in all the right circles. When the French Revolution started, she upped and moved to France. And she did that because she wanted to know what was going on. And she wanted to see for herself what was happening. And when she got there, she found in the early days of the revolution, she found it completely intoxicating and, um, uh, and wrote that it was uh, not a time in which the distinctions of country were remembered. It was the triumph of humankind. It was man asserting the noblest privilege of his nature. And it required but the common feelings of humanity to become in that moment a citizen of the world. Everybody remembers, or many people remember, William Wordsworth saying, "'Twas very bliss to be alive." I think Helen Mariah Williams should be as much remembered um, for her approach to the revolution as he for his, particularly since he then repudiated the revolution. She remained in France. She. Um, lived through the terror. She was arrested, she, her mother and her sister. They were imprisoned in the Luxembourg Palace, which had become an overflow prison um, uh, because there were so many people awaiting execution. She, her mother and her sister managed to find a tea urn somewhere in the Luxembourg Palace and they managed to find fuel to keep it going, and they managed to supply, supply the English prisoners with hot drinks during the course of their ordeal. So you might be going off to be guillotined that day, but you were going to have had a cup of tea in the morning before you went. Um, she was eventually released, uh, continued to live in Paris, lived all through the revolution, all through the Napoleonic era, and through into the Restoration. And she reported back all the time to Britain about what was happening, who the people were, what her opinion about it was. Um, obviously, she became very unpopular. She was viewed as a revolutionary. There was no sense then of journalistic objectivity. Um, and she was in, uh, not popular, should we say, and lived the rest of her life. Uh, in France, but she is the direct ancestor, ancestress of all the female war correspondents that we have now, of all those courageous women who go out and put themselves in danger in order to report back to us what is happening. They all trace back to Helen Mariah Williams and her courage and her, um, her ability to do that. Um, the second woman is a, a working class woman called Susanna Wright, who uh, in, in the early 1820s decided that she had the right to think and say whatever she pleased. And she rejected religion. She um, thought that the law was an ass. She uh, was eventually arrested and charged with blasphemy. She was tried uh, she was prosecuted by the Attorney General in person. She was tried by the Lord Chief Justice in person. She defended herself, carrying her seven-month-old baby. Um, and she actually persuaded the court to adjourn so she could go and feed him and then come back in. She uh, uh, 
took no prisoners at all. And when the Lord Chief Justice tried to interrupt her and stop her speaking and stop her being critical of the establishment, she turned round to him and said, <clears throat> you, sir, are paid to hear me. And I think for a working class woman to say that and mean it and make him do it is exceptional. Of course she didn't win. Of course she went to prison. Of course it, she had terrible experiences. But she is an amazing woman who many peop most people have never heard of, and she should be better known. There are many others in the book. There are the women of Peterloo. There are Luddite women. There are women writers. There are women thinkers. There are um, some very strange women and some absolutely brilliant women. But I'm going to leave you with a quote from Helen Mariah Williams, <coughs> which I think um, sums up for all of those women uh, what they um, thought, which, uh, when I find it, um, is, is uh, I think, sums up their whole approach. Because she said, uh, I could not remain silent in the face of all the events of my life that I have witnessed. And throughout it, I have remained a true friend of liberty. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Nan, for bringing these women into the light. They needed to be brought into the light. Do we have any questions? Um, well, anyone's thinking about a question, please shout if you do, or let me know. I just wanted to ask that um, there seems to be a huge amount of debate at the moment about what a woman is or what a woman should do. Um, from your point of view, this is nothing new, right? Nothing new at all. I think uh, there has always been that debate. Um, the parameters of it obviously differ from time to time. Uh, and at various points it, it interconnects with class or with race or with all kinds of other things. But I think there has always been in society an, a profound anxiety about women, how women should be, how they should behave, what their relationship with men should be, what their relationship with one another should be, what their relationship with the rest of the world should be. And Fundamentally, I don't think it changes. The conclusion people come to changes very much. I think it's expressed differently. So, you know, the, the Athenian saying, teach a woman to write, you're, you're giving a poison to an asp, is, is, has, has a sort of line through to it of trying to force women off social media for having the temerity to express an opinion in however many characters it is. And, it's a long line, but it's nevertheless there. It's the same idea that women shouldn't be doing things, women shouldn't be expressing opinions, and women should be all these other things that society thinks it holds very dear, but doesn't really. 
Thank you for highlighting that anxiety through time. Um, I'm just going to finish off with a quick question, I think, which is, there's a lot of love for Paris in the room tonight. Um, Kate's come back from Paris, our third speaker, and I know <coughs> we haven't travelled as much as we wanted to. So you talked a bit about the um, French Revolution. Uh, forgive me for my history, and I know it's a hard question to ask a historian what if, but if the revolutionaries had kept in for men and women, rather than asking for rights for men, just men, do you think things would be different? Um, I think uh, they would. Uh, what happened um, very briefly was that it started off as rights for both women and men, yeah. and then they dropped the rights for women. And in fact, Mary Wollstonecraft's Vindication of the Rights of Woman was written in response to the, the Revolutionary Government's Education Programme, which proposed not to educate girls. Mm -hmm. And they had two, and indeed had until 1945 in France, two levels of citizenship in which women were the lower level of citizenship and men were the upper level. I think if they had achieved a society in which both women and men had equal citizenship, that would, and if Napoleon hadn't happened, mm. because he's, he is the person who abolished, Robespierre began to abolish women's rights, and Napoleon abolished them all. Um, so if the revolution had stuck with equality, and if Napoleon had never happened, then I think the rest of us would have got our rights a lot more quickly because I think once that was there, people would have gone, if then, why not us? Brilliant. The importance of history right there, <laughs> understanding it. Um, ladies and gentlemen, Nan Sloan. Thank you for listening to HIF Player. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to this podcast. For more information about our arts charity and upcoming events, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.